taking the VC route to growth is common in the tech sector. In fact, according to Crunchbase in 2020, late venture capital investment grew by 8% and private equity in venture-backed companies grew by 73%, maybe in spite of and maybe because of the pandemic. I'm your host, Anna Britnell Guest, and I've worked with both VC and non-VC funded tech companies for many years. I've always been curious about how VC funding can make all kinds of things possible, but not all VC funded businesses go on to achieve their growth plans and a successful exit. So what makes for a successful partnership? If you're on this journey, stay tuned because I have two guests coming up who share their own personal experiences that may help you to make the right choices too. And if you enjoyed this episode, please sign up for our newsletter at revenueriser.com, where we share more useful resources and insights for revenue leaders like you. So to introduce my guests, Alfonso de la Nuez is co-CEO at UserZoom, a fast-growing user experience insight SaaS company. One of the things I've learned in the last year or so working with Alfonso and his leadership team is not only how ambitious they are, but how open to sharing experiences they are to help others. He's taken UserZoom through several funding rounds and from Spain to Silicon Valley, and so I'm delighted he agreed to tell his story. Equally so, Iran Westman. Iran has seen both sides, and I first worked with him as a CEO at Video before he became a partner at Viola Growth. Viola Growth is an Israel-oriented late-stage VC, and Iran's portfolio includes companies like Bring and Bizabo, both transforming their respective markets. Iran is also someone who's open and direct about what he sees and thinks in a way that's refreshing and transparent. So let's hear their experiences from their different journeys. Iran Viola Growth is obviously a later stage VC. What are some of the things that you look for in companies when you're evaluating a partnership and, and investing in them? Okay, so when we are looking at the company, I would say they are the normal thing that every venture capital, whether it's early stage or late stage, is looking at is, of course, the target addressable market, the, the innovation that the team brings to the table and, the, you know, how disruptive it is and both the competitive market. And I guess this is not something that unorthodox uh, to any other VCs. I would say uh, for my experience, something is that is very important for us at Viola Growth, uh, but uh, definitely for me when I'm uh, looking at uh, companies, is the founding teams. And, you know, sometimes it can be one, can be two, can be three hope not many more than that. And you look at a few things. Of course, you look at their uh, energy and their desire to success, how big they take. I remind you, we are at late stage. So uh, in order for us for, uh, to have a successful exit, it should be in a, a meaningful amount. So also the length that those uh, teams are willing to go and uh, capable. But also I think is their capabilities, how to manage, how to manage in scale, how to take uh, things uh, that it's everything is not only on the plates of the founder. How do they build management, their ability to bring people that they can learn from and not only to teach people. And always there is the human element, you know, what do you feel? And in this case, what do I feel is our ability to work together. The stage we are involved, the company already proved product market fit. They have all those uh, things that matters. They have customers, they have employees, they have investors, and they have numbers. Yes, we are in a stage that you can also review numbers, provided they have those. Otherwise, of course, we will not continue to that stage. But then you have to look at how will we work together because we hope that we can help. You feel that there is the chemistry 
in the end of the day on both sides that uh, you will be able to be the as I always call it the, the first phone call so if the CEO has a, an issue uh, I would prefer that the viola growth and uh, me in a company that I invested uh, will be the first phone call that he will make for that you need to feel that there is a good chemistry that uh, you can complement to their strengths with uh, the experience and things that we have done before and that we see eye to eye uh, how things are going and that that we make the investment and then you come uh, for the first board and you have the aha moment not in a very positive way so that's i think something very important that uh, there is a strong alignment about what they want to do in the company aligned with what we believe the company should do and i'm not talking about the tactic thing but more the big picture as we're going to work very closely together for a few years uh, you will see that they are uh, in agreement to the way we want to work together I think that alignment is so important in any partnership, but especially in one that's so close and so interrelated and that cultural fit as, as well. I think McKinsey did a report actually around merger and acquisition a couple of years ago about 95% of people said cultural fit was probably the key most important success factor when looking at whether a merger was going to be successful or or whether it was really going to be a failure and fall apart. And I, and I suspect that it's similar for an investor company partnership, isn't it? Alfonso, what's been your experience in going through those various stages? I have worked with three different types of investors uh, in the last uh, 15 years or so. You know, one of the things that stands out to me is how important it is to match the the right company and startup or scale up with the right investor based on the situation and stage that you're in in the business, because it's kind of similar to the management team, the experience and discipline and domain that you have to have depending on the stage you're, you're in. When you're trying to figure out product market fit and really trying to figure out the TAM, it's, it's really hard to do that in the first few years. You're going to work with a type of investor that has a specific process in place and adds specific value and is willing to to take a certain amount of risk. As an entrepreneur, you're going to expect uh, something different than if you're going to work with a growth investor, uh, because it's not the same to go from one to five million than to go from 50 to 200 million. So I think that's one of the things that as an entrepreneur, I didn't know before I went through that. And I think it's one of the most valuable lessons is you have to pick the right investor for the right stage. Another, Another example that comes to mind is we really didn't know, for instance, at user Zoom, who our target market was, who, how big was that total addressable market, whether this was going to be a big company. Even the market has really grown quite a bit in the last decade. And so we never we never thought we could be a fundable business by a Silicon Valley VC. And yet, once we passed the $10 million mark and we noticed that the market was picking up, it was clear to us that working with a growth VC that was specifically focused on B2B software which is very different than B2C, for instance, enterprise software, that was going to be very important. And, and we picked one that that has done that or had done that for 30 years or so. So stage and also focus would be, would be very important for me. And then, of course, we mentioned the culture. That's why it's important to, if possible, and I'm not suggesting that this is you know, something that everybody can do, but if you can have establish a report and a relationship with the potential investor over time. You know, if you talk several times and you see, and the investor can see the evolution of the business, and then as the entrepreneur, you can also have several conversations with that VC over time. You get to know them, you know, you get to know them a little bit and get to know 
through those conversations whether it's going to be a fit or not. And, and that's something that happened to us with our current investor, actually two large growth investors now, but the first one that came in 2015, we had already talked for, I think, three to four years prior to them investing. So from a culture perspective, we, you know, we didn't know each other super well until you really, you know, start working with each other, you don't know. But we did have, a, you know, several conversations and figured it was the right fit from a culture perspective. Yeah, I think that uh, what I will join very much to what Alfonso very rightly said, you know, I have the privilege of being on both sides, you know, being on the side that you have investor sitting on your board. And of course, the side that I am today uh, sitting on other companies as a board member, as a chairman. You know, there is no right or wrong, but, you know, both Alfonso and myself originally from the Mediterranean area. So we may be more uh, people, people. Or then uh, maybe some others, maybe not. But for me, on both sides, I think as a, as a CEO or as an executive, even before, uh, you have multiple board members and we are all people. So, you know, some you get along better and some you get along less. But in the end of the day, of course, it's always better than you have also good personal relationship. But uh, in the end of the day, it's also professional and you need to bring tough love uh, uh, also to your kids and also to uh, CEOs that you like. So for me, chemistry uh, doesn't necessarily like need to be that whether you are a CEO that this is the board member you would like to have a beer, even though it will be great. It's uh, a relationship that when I speak about the chemistry is that the relationship that you can feel that when you say something actually on both sides, nobody will take things personally. Nobody will take like you're criticizing uh, you have an advantage of a CEO that you know all the details that the board member will never know. And actually an advantage as a board member that you actually see only the big picture. And when you give your view, it's without knowing the details. And sometimes, you know, details getting confused. So I think that you can have an honest, uh, real, sincere relationship that you can work together and give compliments when needed, give things that you think that need to be approved that the CEO at least need to look at them uh, to be approved. There are many types of board members and investors. Uh, there are those that call them cheerleaders. There are those that are uh, getting into the nuts and bolts. I think that uh, the truth is somewhere in the middle. How can you indicate to the CEO potentially some blind spot that he has from the CEO perspective to listen to what people see that are not swollen with all those uh, details that are uh, surrounding us in the day-to-day uh, when you are CEO. That alignment is so critical there as well, isn't it? Because if, you show, if you've got a shared vision of where you're trying to get to, a shared big picture, then you can have those difficult conversations. You can have the tough love because you're all pulling in the same direction, aren't you? For sure. So alignment is, is, is crucial in, in every aspect. It can change. And I think I will refer to what Alfonso mentioned about the different, I wouldn't say type, but the different stage of investors. Uh, because uh, in companies, and I will not be probably the first one to say, you have a very early investor and every fund is a term and every fund is a, a day that they want to have uh, also a return of their investment. And uh, if you are uh, invested in the company 10 years ago, you probably want to see it going public or being sold or uh, uh, getting any uh, act of uh, uh, cashing out. And when you just invested, it's definitely not the situation. So the alignment should be Again, first as a group of the investor, but definitely when uh, I can speak for myself, when I'm working with a, a CEO is very much to make sure that at least we see the alignment going forward in terms of the company growth. For example, let's say if the alignment includes companies' acquisitions, the company needs to implement it. If you as a board member have, have some experience doing something like this, I'm sure the CEO would love, especially those that haven't done 
uh, acquisition before. As we all know, you know, doing the acquisition is relatively easy. The post-merger integration is the tough part. And if you, uh, by any chance, have experience in this uh, domain, I think this is where you can uh, contribute. And this is for me alignment. You know, you make sure that the alignment is okay. We're going to grow inorganic. The CEO knows that you have experience. He will come to you uh, when he will have uh, issues he would like to share or get advice. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with, with Iran. On, it's not about going out and having beers. It, it's really about the personal relationship within the business context. For instance, transparency, alignment, honesty, uh, integrity. I mean, those things are people, values, right? And, and, and ways of, for instance, communication. I think communication is really important. Frequent communication with your investor, I think, makes a lot, makes a lot of sense, especially at the beginning and especially before signing uh, an agreement. You know, what is, business, what is success like, right, for, for both the entrepreneur, the team, and the investor? Because there's many potential outcomes out there. And certainly success is obviously increasing the, or getting a, a nice return on investment. But how? You know, maybe discussing the strategy uh, up front, uh, the growth strategy. You go with an investor and you, you're sort of going into a jungle, right? Where you're going to have to figure out your way around. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty, a lot of potential threats. And you got to go together. And, and so I think that communication... And to Iran's point, how you set up that from the beginning with, with transparency, that's part of what I call the people-to-people you know, aspect of joining forces uh, with an investor. And as a founder, there's a common journey, isn't there, for founders who, you know, it's your baby, you start it. And as you bring in investors, that not only does your ownership actually dilute, the relationship you have with the business and your role as, as chief exec or the, as the leader of the business changes as well, doesn't it? So I know, Alfonso, you've been through a lot of that journey um, and it, it'll be a common one, I think, to anybody that's on that, that path as well. But what are some of the things that you've really had to learn or, or pay attention to? Well, so once again, I'll go back to my original comment on the stage. So when we were working with a smaller investor who was kind of early stage, as a CEO and founder, you have to get stuff done that later in, when you get big, you don't do as much and you delegate. So that's a stage that you're just hustling and trying to grow and trying to get going and all that. The the stage that I felt was very, uh, very different where I noticed my role changed dramatically is once we got past, you know, 20, 30 million or so and brought in, you know, an investor and I just had to learn to be a CEO. Before, I, I felt like I was an entrepreneur CEO. But when you're a CEO, I think you're more of a leader versus somebody who's doing everything. And I think you need to learn to lead. And that's a huge lesson for me. That I'm, It's a journey that I, I enjoy a lot, being surrounded by people that have been leading for a long time and have a lot more experience. And you need to learn to let go of that feeling of your baby. It's still your baby, but you need to understand that by bringing in great leaders around you, there's multiple benefits. One, you, the, the company should not depend on you. The best leaders are the ones that make it so that you don't, you're not necessary, right? Even as a founder. The most important thing is the team and the company, not you. You have to hire the best people that you can for each of those areas, whether it's sales or product, et cetera. And your role becomes more of a 
visionary or a leader that thinks about the strategy and the vision culture, but you let those experts and those teammates that you've hired, let them do what they're supposed to do. That's why you hire them. Now, letting go of that and working with an investor who may also bring in those leaders, like it happened to us. You know, in our case, for instance, we are we have a co-CEO model where I have more of the visionary role and kind of the face of the company, the marketing, the, I understand the, the market really well. And he's more of the operator with experience, you know, who has taken companies public. And that's that's a model that our investor suggested. And we all agreed. And look, it wasn't easy for me. I, I you know, I, I have to say it, but over time, I understood that that was the best thing for the business. So that's the journey I've gone through in the last few years. It hasn't been easy, but at the same time, it's been phenomenal and the best thing for the company. Iran, I imagine that as, as the investor, coaching and coaxing CEOs along that journey is also something that's, that you see regularly and, and have to support. So how, how do you help CEOs on that journey? Because it's a, it's a tough one often, I think, for a CEO to, to embrace, even if they see the, the value of it. I think that uh, on this front, there is no cookie cutter. So some of the conversations are tough conversations. And you need to know how to approach, and eventually it's it's one on one. So it, what this person uh, will think on the situation. So coming from Israel, being more direct, more uh, abrupt, uh, I think this is sometimes help because you know we invest in Israeli or Israeli related, even though we have CEOs that are uh, no Israelis that we brought in the later stage. But I think that eventually you need to say also the tough things. So that conversation and coaching now. Coaching is also a great thing. You hired a great CFO, you hired a great head of R&D. It was a great quarter. So I think that you need to really come with how is the best to communicate with that individual. Again, my way is to have a routine meeting. So it's not that I will meet the CEO only when there is an issue. I'll try to meet them. And again, the frequency depends on the stage of the company, how much the CEO allocate time to you. Again, it's it has to be, again, two-way street. Uh, and when you have routine meetings, once a week, once every other week, one, whatever, I'm not talking about the phone calls that somebody needs advice, but uh, routine meetings, those is where you can cover topics. We already decide on topics that we would like to discuss in advance. You know, we see a lot of companies. So let's say we want to speak about market, marketing efficiency. You know, I can see uh, much broader, I see much broader world than a CEO of a company will see because we have more than 20 companies that we uh, are sitting on the board as a partnership and also many companies that we look and eventually we don't invest and we see a data. So sometimes I need to prepare something, something sometimes the CEO will need to prepare, but I think that having the topic uh, sometimes help, uh, especially when it's a, a deeper conversation. But having the ongoing conversation weekly by weekly timeline, I think helps that you can bring also the topic. So you have a lot of hours together and sometimes tough the topics need to be raised. That's part of the making things more systematic as well, isn't it? It's part of the professionalization and building in the structure in order for the business to then scale, which which in and of itself requires the CEO, the founder, to be more of the leader and less of the doer as such. What are some of the things that you see? And Alfonso, perhaps you want to come in here because that part of that professionalization and being able to learn from investors who have experience across multiple companies, either currently or previously, is a key part of building that professionalization, isn't there? So what have they brought to, to UserZoom for you? 
Oh, so much, so much, so much. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't even know where to start, but really, I guess one of the first things that that we worked on when we brought in the investor is data, is, is just understanding what's going on in the business. You know, we, we didn't have the systems nor the processes to understand what's going on. You can't scale without data, or you can, but, you know, <laughs> You're going to basically make decisions based on guess versus you know insights or or data that that backs up the decisions. When you're a small company, you can get away with it, but once you start scaling, you need to know you know exactly what's going on. And in the case of investors, in our case, I'll say I'll speak for ours. You know, obviously they're very very focused on uh, on on the financial health of the company. And uh, you know, we didn't in our case uh, we didn't really have a, a any one of the three founders focused on finance or you know, we, we didn't hire a CFO. So it was a one of the f- best things, I think, and one of the most important things that we did, again, back six years ago, was to, at the first hire, was pretty much a CFO that can put the systems in place. We were barely using Salesforce. We were barely using any ERP. They were kind of running on Excel and QuickBooks. So that was that was very important. And from a professionalization perspective, you have to set up the right the right team. It's a different team once again when you're going up to five or ten million than when you're going after ten million, twenty million, etc. And so they helped us with recruiting the the right team, not just the CFO, but also marketing professional, uh, sales professionals. I mean, it was it was just that's the team is I think the focus, the data, the team, the processes, the board. Of course, we changed the board. Um, company was based out of Barcelona, Spain, and. We set up the board in in the U.S. and it was all new. It was brand new and everything that comes with it. But I would say that the most important aspect or part of the professionalization had to do with data, just knowing what's going on in the business to make decisions. It's key for any growth to understand where you are, where you're trying to get to. Iran, do you want to talk a bit about what that looks like for Viola, because as a business, you have quite a clear view of your portfolio. There seems to be a lot of synergy amongst the kinds of companies that you invest in, not just geographically. Perhaps we'll come and talk about geography in a minute as well. But what are some of the things that you look for from a from a data perspective, both in the investments and in helping them to grow? So we are huge believer in data. We have a dedicated team that in other world may be crunching numbers day in day out they look at the, every kpi that is being released uh, publicly and then they look the data of all our portfolio again mixing it you cannot say that this is that company or this company but uh, eventually come and put it uh, as good and how great looks like okay so let's say this company is growing uh, in that percentage and it's coming, you know, we have a tool that we develop internally, and then you can compare whether they fall among others. And that's, I think, a very important thing. Let's say for me as a board member, specifically a company, I'm looking, by the way, also in due diligence, but also definitely when you invested, say their CAC payback is uh, through the roof or the CAC payback is something that need improvement or burn versus new customers. And yeah, you know, there are many, many KPIs. So we are very, very data-driven. And this is very helpful because I think the company appreciate the feedback. You know, when you sit with the CFO, the budget for next year, the CFO and CEO, and you tell them everything looks great. But I think that the proportion of money that you put in marketing compared to your size, compared to what we see in other company, compared to efficiency, etc., it's not on par with great company or not in par even with good companies. And I think that this is something very important. And even when you 
want to speak about geography. When is the right time? And then you can see whether you're exhausted already, the business you have in a certain territory, you're big enough there, are you spread too thin? And we try to bring as much data as possible. And, and of course, the fact that today uh, all companies are looking using already uh, advanced tools, uh, you can get a very strong BI reports, uh, and that feeds it feeds us, then feeds them. So that's uh, something very important for us. And data is a great feedback to give and learn. One of the things that I think really comes across to me, and the more and more that I've worked with VC-funded businesses over recent years, is seeing those companies where there's a really there's a high amount of ambition, a huge desire and focus on scaling, on hyper growth, you know, growing growing fast with a clear view of exit goals, but doing so in a way that takes everybody in the business on the journey that feels sustainable and doable versus what I what I had a bit of an impression of some years ago of companies that were perhaps being pushed to grow at an unsustainable level and at a level where people were burning out or perhaps not really clear on what was in it for them to be on the journey and, and working really hard. You know, I think sometimes you can see a company where employees are working hard on the treadmill but don't feel that they're part of the reward or, or part of the good part of the journey that they're they're the kind of ants that are making some going to make somebody else rich I'm, I'm interested in your view of whether you know there's been more of a focus in recent years on you know on partnership and realistic growth that takes employees on the journey you know whether, whether or not they benefit financially from an IPO but where people feel that they are part of the vision that they buy into it much more because certainly that's what I see in in UserZoom, for instance, but also in multiple companies where people are excited about that growth and want to be part of it, as opposed to feeling that there's an external force that's demanding it. Well, if I can come in on that one, define success. I will be open here. You know, I think our investors and 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 the board and the employees, the management team in UserZoom probably be pretty happy with a, a lower number a couple of years ago, you know, in terms of valuation, in terms of where we were, we've exceeded expectations. I think we we can all agree with that because a few years ago we had some numbers in our minds and 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 now we're almost tripling that from a valuation perspective. So nobody really expected or nobody knew, nobody had a crystal ball. So I think you get burned and you have that exhaustion issue with the team when you're not really aligned with what success is. It's a matter of expectations. I personally haven't experienced the the pressure from an investor that doesn't match the pressure we had our own on our own. If you raise money from an investor, if you raise capital, if you go into this jungle that I was talking about earlier, and you don't have a clear you know, alignment in expectations, <laughs> then then that's the that's the that's the worst mistake you can make, right? So we we were pressuring ourselves to take it far and. You know, our employees, uh, one of the strengths of UserZoom is the culture is that we all want the same thing. You know, there's nothing better than to have the full team working on one same goal. But if, if, you don't, uh, if you don't align expectations at the very beginning, uh, that's when I think you can get burned. That's kind of what, what, what I have in, in our experience. I mean, we've had a couple of bad quarters back in the day when we were still trying to figure things out. And so at that point, you feel like, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to solve that? But that's part of the process. If it's ongoing and it's it, it never ends, then there's an issue. I think that it actually comes back to the point we discussed earlier about alignment. 
if you have alignment between the investors and the company, that the company is, let's take for example, growing in any cost, just growing, which you can see many companies today. You burn as much as you want, you hire as many as you, people you want, you do anything. The only grail is growth. That's okay. And, and there is alignment. It's not that it's one side. There is alignment. And I think then it's, uh, if, if it doesn't happen, I think that there is a very relevant to have a conversation about it. I definitely don't uh, agree with, the, therefore I say, I don't think that people should be the cheerleader. I don't people need to be the, the those that are criticizing everything. I don't uh, like to be with those people in the boardroom, whether when I was a CEO or today when, let's say, even fellow investors. I think that there would be tough quarters to any company, even the best companies in the world. If it's happening again one time, twice, as Alfonso just mentioned, you know, that's not. Nice. I think that the investor, the board, if there is an alignment, and those uh, this alignment need to be prior to investor coming into the company. And of course, there is change of strategy, but then let's have a strategic conversation, agree on it, and move forward. But it's not about bothering uh, whether... Uh, you spend uh, uh, $2 million more on R&D or uh, your marketing is not uh, efficient. If there is a big picture agreement, I think this is where you need to focus. I liked, uh, I saw something from a CEO uh, post, uh, I think this week even, and he said, I'm responsible about two things in the company, about the strategy and about the culture. And in a company, especially in a certain size, when you have the management team in place that they run, the company day to day. I think that this is where the CEO and those also should be the important conversation about the strategy with the board. And for your question, how do we make sure that the employees are still engaged even in those very aggressive growth pain? Because growing fast is a painful thing. We all experience it. But if there is a, a strong importance on a culture and people understand why they do what they do, where are we going? What is success defined, as Alfonso rightly said? Uh, I think that this is where you can keep people engaged and motivated and eager to continue to grow. And if I can add to that, Anna, the all-hands meetings. I mean, especially now in the pandemic where we're working remotely, they're so important to remind people, as Evan said, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we making these decisions? Why we need to change something? Or why are we going into something else? There can't be that there's a board and a top management team talking about you know, strategy and top management topics, let's just say, and the employees at a completely different level. I think there's an opportunity, especially in this age where everything is so transparent and people know everything. There's an opportunity for leadership to be very close to the employee. And I think the all-hands meetings are very, very important and open up on those aspects of the strategy why are we considering buying a company? Or why are we making this decision now, financially speaking? You know, maybe we were looking to generate more cash, whatever the objective is. And I think communicating openly with, with the company, uh, especially as you grow and you have a lot of new people that come in and maybe they haven't been onboarded on the strategy and why you do things. That's, I think, one of the modern CEO roles, to be very communicative with everybody. I think it really brings to mind, and Alfonso, I know you're very familiar with this. One of my partners, Squadify, a lot of the research that they've been doing with London School of Economics shows that clarity is one of the biggest indicators 
of successful high-performing teams and having clarity about what are we doing, why are we doing it, what's the plan for us to get there is absolutely critical. But it also brings to mind the first episode in this season of the podcast and Lauren White, who's chief exec at Bamboo Technology, she was talking about something very similar. She sees a key part of her role as being communicating the vision and the strategy to the team. It just reinforces exactly what you're what you're talking about. Bringing us around to, we touched on geography a little bit. It's an area I'd just like to spend a couple of minutes talking about because Alfonso, obviously coming from Spain, you made the big decision to move yourself and your family to Silicon Valley in support of the growth of the business. Iran, I know through your career, you've lived in I think multiple countries. How important do you think the choice of both country of where you operate the business from, but that global or at least international perspective is in taking your company forward? I think that the first, definitely this question probably would have uh, received a different answer uh, prior to the pandemic, yeah, prior to COVID, because I think COVID taught all of us that you can do uh, many things without traveling. And, and, and you mentioned that I have been living in uh, both uh, Asia and in the U.S. in uh, prior jobs. In terms of moving closer to the market, building talent, I think where you put, uh, whether it's company headquarters or company office, has to do with how crucial it is to you to be closer to the customers, to the investors, to partnership. Those are, I think, the key issues that people move. Or the availability of talent. In, in some places, you know, I don't want to give any name of a city, don't, I don't want to offend anyone, but you know, some cities in the world, uh, you cannot find the talent that uh, you need to do what you want to do, every company uh, uh, with their own needs. So I think those are the reasons. I can say that even look at the talents uh, in Israel, there are a lot of demands. In the past, every CEO that uh, wanted in technology space, wanted to move immediately to the Silicon Valley. Now many more actually moving to New York time zone, distance, uh, and also New York becoming a much more important technology hub compared to what it used to be in the past. But part of the reasons to do so, of course, was, again, the investor, the market, uh, most companies addressing first the US market. But also was uh, the talent, because in the past, there were very little uh, market executive uh, in Israel. And, but again, with the market evolving and some people that were acquired worked in a bigger company and came back, it's more available. So you can see some very big companies in Israel like Wix or Checkpoints that almost all their Monday.com, almost all their executives are actually uh, staying in Israel. Sometimes speaking about relationship between investors and CEOs, sometimes the investors are pushing very hard the CEO to move to the U.S., Again, provided the U.S. is the uh, the market that they are focusing on. But I think that we have both types of companies. We have companies that decided that they remain in Israel. We have companies that are very much moved uh, to the U.S. We have those that are in between. So I think this is, again, where you as an investor should give your opinion, again, for the respective company. But at the end of the day, the CEO needs to do what is right for him. Yeah, I'll come in and, and tell tell you about my experience, everything Eran had said, 100% agreed. We would probably do things a little differently because the pandemic has taught us so much uh, if we were to start over again today. But at the same time, I think there's a few things that we did that were that I think worked out really well. So we moved here back in, again, around 2009 because of the market. We weren't really looking for capital. It was more about who was the buyer 
uh, and the user for our product. And that was clearly actually not just the US market, but even Silicon Valley, right? Like the digital companies uh, and software companies were the ones investing the most in you know, optimization of their user experience, uh, which is what we do. The way we did it though, you know, we actually kept this uh, model, which today actually works really well. And a lot of companies because of the pandemic would probably use this model. There's a few of us moving to the market where, especially in our case, where we're doing uh, enterprise sales, B2B software enterprise sales model, you know, there's not, not today because of the pandemic, but there are meetings happening once in a while. And so that's something that, that we did back in the day and we made do again, you know, if we were to start over again, but the R&D and the design team, and even later we moved the support team to Barcelona, Spain, where, you know, we, we see a great pool of talent and there's a lot of cost effectiveness there. Uh, and it's worked out really well. I, I wouldn't say that it was really easy from the very beginning. It took a few years of, you know, feeling distant and not having that many uh, hours of face-to-face, but given the trajectory of the company, Today, we can definitely say that we are a global business, uh, that we have been able to work and collaborate remotely. It has helped us uh, reduce costs while still maintaining high quality. And it's also helped us reach different markets from a go-to-market perspective, given that we are already in Europe. You know, we have an office, uh, our headquarters basically for, from a go-to-market perspective is in, is in the UK. And so we've been able to penetrate that market. So we have the US market, and the European market covered, while there are people working you know, remotely from many countries and many states of the United States from a geography perspective. So all in all, agree with 100% with Iran's uh, point. And when the pandemic hit, we were already global, we were already very remote, and it didn't really hit us hard. We were ready for it. It's obvious those companies that could respond quickly because they were well set up for remote working and maybe not to the extreme and to the extent that we've all seen over the last 18 months. But nevertheless, you know, those already on the journey have definitely had a little easier ride, were able to pivot and adapt a little a little easier. I'm conscious of your time and we're due to wrap up. So Alfonso, what would be your parting comment to other leaders who are somewhere on, on a similar journey? Try to get you know, as much traction as possible at the beginning to really figure things out before you bring an investor in. I think the role of the investor, especially the growth investor, is, is not to figure out the business, it's to really help grow the business. So it's two different things. And let's not forget that. Again, back to the stage, the, the different investor for different stages. Uh, I would say get as much traction as possible at the beginning using some seed funding really focus on the data that we talked about earlier. We didn't do that. There's a lot of SaaS metrics out there, especially if you're in SaaS, right? Uh, which is what we are. Focus on the data and focus on managing with data. If you can do that early, you'll be ready or more ready to partner with an investor and get things going. It will it will speed up the kind of the ramp up time of partnering with an investor. Uh, understand that your role is going to change uh, as an entrepreneur, if things go well, and that's a good thing. And then, yeah, keep culture, as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So keep culture in mind as one of the most important things to keep that relationship healthy with the investors and the board. And be very transparent and communicative when it comes to success metrics and, and, and alignment. Just a few thoughts. <laughs> Thank you. And Aram? I think we spoke a lot about alignment. In the end of the day, there are 
different company with different investors and, and different investor uh, firms. And my recommendation to both sides is that eventually it's a lot of work together between the investor, board member, and CEO. It's not only about whether I worked in that firm or that firm. Eventually, it's the person. So I think that for the CEO, especially, sometimes they get you know excited by the brand. And some of the brands are great, but I think it's eventually who is the partner. And I think this is something very important to ask. And hopefully you work with him already in the due diligence, but some bring operating partners, some bring others. So very important to know uh, who you're going to work with in the years to come. And then you need to ask yourself, how do I feel working with this person? Thank you. I really appreciate you both spending the time and sharing your experiences. And I think the things that really jump out to me are all about that alignment, that it is a a partnership that's a two-way street and it requires communication, it requires transparency, and it is quite a long haul. It's not a quick fix. It's not a quick turnaround. You know, these relationships can last for a number of years. And so making the right choices is really really important and having the right way of navigating that relationship, whether it's data, whether it's relying on those trusting conversations and the combination of those sounds really critical. So thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting us. So much to absorb there. And I hope you found Alfonso and Iran's stories insightful and inspiring as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, you may also enjoy a couple of others. First of all, user Zoom CRO, Jamie Melalu, talking with me and Lauren White in episode one of season one about growing in a volatile world. And secondly, Paul Zemarani of Visibo, one of Viola's portfolio, talking with me and Bob Horn of Elusive about scaling the sales organization, also in season one. Finally, one quick request. I want to continue to make Revenue Riser a truly valuable podcast for revenue leaders. So please sign up for our newsletter at revenueriser.com to engage in the conversation and to help me to shape season three, maybe even to come on the show yourself. Thank you for your support and see you next time for our final episode of the season when I'll be talking with Azzy Aslam about sleep and why it might just be the key factor in our sales success. See you there.